Welcome back to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of design and health. You can reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Our guest today is a good friend of mine. He is Dr. Gregory Snyder, who is a clinical innovator and physician executive leading technology-enabled care delivery models in order to improve healthcare quality and safety. Gray graduated from Princeton University, Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital Internal Medicine Residency in Harvard Business School. Greg practices hospital medicine at Mass General Brigham Newton Wellesley and is an entrepreneur in residence at the Mass General Healthcare Transformation Lab. He is a clinical assistant professor at Tufts University School of Medicine, associate faculty at Ariande Labs, and adjunct faculty for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Greg focuses on scaling virtual hospital at home programs and improving the quality and safety of home-based care. And he's the Vice President of Clinical Strategy and Quality Improvement for Medically Home. We really want you to visit our website at designladpod.com. There you can do two things. You can subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't done so already. Our producer, Rob Pugisi, will send you his thoughts, his reflections on each episode every week, and you can learn more about the guest. And you will also be able to submit your favorite design fail in healthcare. There's instructions on the website on how to do that. Please support Design Lab by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and giving us five stars and subscribing to the show. Now my conversation with Dr. Gregory Snyder. Dr. Greg Snyder, welcome to Design Lab. Dr. Bon Koo, thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be here. I appreciate it. For the listening audience, Greg is a good friend of mine. I knew him when he was a <laughs> medical student in Philadelphia, so I'm going to call you Greg if that's okay. You should call me Greg, and for your listening audience, friend, I would say mentee as well. You're, no, you're my mentor. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, right back at you, so I love it. I love it. Both are true. Greg, what are you up to these days? What You have a few different roles. Tell us about what your like day-to-day looks like. Yeah, I am a practicing internist. I practice hospital medicine in a community academic hospital that is a part of the Mass General Brigham Health System called Newton Wellesley Hospital. That's in Massachusetts, right? It is in Massachusetts. Yeah. It's in the sort of outskirts of Boston in Newton, Massachusetts as a part of that Newton Wellesley Hospital is a teaching site for a number of different academic institutions, including Tufts University School of Medicine, where I'm a clinical assistant professor and help teach medical students. It's also a teaching site for Mass General Hospital, and I am an entrepreneur in residence at the Mass General Healthcare Transformation Lab. I advise a company called Narrable Health, but my main role is as vice president of clinical strategy and quality improvement for Medically Home Group. And your listeners are probably wondering, what is Medically Home Group? Yeah. What do they do? Well, first, you have a lot of freaking jobs. You have more jobs than I do. So I'm like blown my away. My number one by... job on is I have three kids <laughs> and in a very, very busy partner. And so being a dad and a, and a good partner is job number one. Yeah. So what's this company, Medically Home? What do you do for it? Yeah. Medically Home is a company that 
is enabling and building the future of decentralized healthcare. And we focus on that and have focused on that in many different ways over the years. I think we're known primarily for hospital at home today, but we do a number of different things in the space of decentralizing healthcare. We do hospital at home where we partner with predominantly hospital provider systems to help them build and then to build the services of their hospital at home programs. We also do emergency department in home increasingly now. This is a sort of new and evolving model of home-based acute care. And that's something that we've been focused on a lot over the last few years. It will be in the future. What does that yeah. mean? Emergency care at home? Oh, I think that, Bon, I, I just, I was fortunate to give a talk the other day called No More Buildings. And I think that, you know, that's that's perhaps the theme of decentralizing healthcare is, is that we see a future where hospital care can be based in the home, emergency, most emergency department care, not all can be based in the home. Not all hospital care can be based in the home, but for yeah. those risk stratified conditions that are appropriate for home-based care, we should be moving them into the home and letting emergency departments treat truly emergent patients, letting hospitals treat truly step down or ICU level of care patients where we feel we can really decentralize so much of the care that's currently being delivered in hospitals yeah. and emergency departments. Now you use a couple of terms that I think not all the audience will be familiar with mm -hmm. centralized care versus decentralized care. So for those who are not familiar with these two different care delivery models, can you explain the difference between the two? Yeah. Well, I'll explain it in two ways. I think I'll explain it historically and I'll explain it by analogy. Mm -hmm. And I'll say historically that in the remote past, let's rewind a hundred years, it would have been the status quo, the standard of care to receive care in your own home. Mm -hmm. And hospitals were really built for two reasons. The first was to bring together clinical services and resources, predominantly doctors and nurses. There was a sort of thought that centralization of clinical intellectual horsepower and services would be a good thing for patients. And it certainly was for certain types of patients, certain populations of patients. In fact, most hospitals were really built to serve patients who are highly socioeconomically vulnerable. So the original hospitals were essentially for poor people, like underserved yeah. people. And while the rich got their care at home, right? They didn't yeah. go to hospitals. Yeah. The idea of a general hospital, a city hospital, you know, a quote unquote safety net hospital. Hospitals were really built as places where people who perhaps didn't have homes could receive care for people who lived in, in major you know, metropolitan areas, for example, but folks who are socioeconomically advantaged would still receive care in their homes. And again, I'm re rewinding quite a bit. And the visiting doctor was obviously a phenomenon that many of our probably grandparents at this point were very well familiar with, and that's uh -huh. gone away over time. And we'll say what we know now, which is what hospitals and, and facility-based healthcare has really become. It's a place where Yes, socioeconomically vulnerable populations get care, but it's a place with lots and lots of technology and lots and lots of specialty services and lots and lots of care that is provided to people who can pay for that care. Yeah. 
So it's changed a lot over time. So even though what you're doing is relatively new, this like decentralized care model, you're not really designing anything new, right? It's like, it's pretty like old school what you're doing, but like, how can you be sure that giving care at home, you're going to get the same like results, right? Mm -hmm. Because you go in a hospital, that's pretty fancy, man. It's pretty state of the art. There's like CAT scanners, MRIs, right. like like proton pump therapy, all this stuff. Yeah, they're like yeah. they're like these two billion dollar facilities. Like they're mm -hmm. they look pretty fancy. Right. Right. And you know, it's so interesting that you mentioned the sort of fancy procedures and, and technologies that, as you know, as we know really lead to a lot of cost in our system. Yet, separate from hospital at homes, quality, safety, clinical outcomes, we're not getting very good outcomes in this country, mm. right? If we were to compare ourselves to other countries, for example, and we could have an argument or discussion around that, but there is a big piece of what is, in my view, value-based care in this equation. You know, the value equation being quality over cost, numerator, quality, denominator, cost. And, and so for every time we build a building and spend that money on a building, I think we need to ask ourselves, are we getting the value out of that building that we want for our patients? Mm. And so that was sort of where I was going with the historical explanation of centralization. The analogy of centralization, decentralization to your earlier question is maybe the cab stand, right? Like today we don't, oftentimes we don't go to a place in order to hail a taxi. Yeah. We instead stay where we are and ask a driver to come to us through an application, for example. And that's another sort of analogy for what might be viewed as the difference between centralization of a resource and decentralization of a resource. I hope we get to talk more about the clinical outcomes of hospital at home though, because that's, that's part of the most fun part of hospital at home. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. What does it actually look like? A, mm -hmm. like a, medical team coming to your house as a patient if you have like mm -hmm. pneumonia for example like walk us through maybe one yeah. of some use cases that mm -hmm. you have at medically home for um, yeah great great question yeah and, and actually you know thank you for raising that point because there are a couple of different flavors of hospital at home care and i'm going to focus on hospital at home just so your listeners are aware because there are lots and lots of forms of home-based care Okay. home-based primary care, home-based palliative care, home hospice, urgent care, et cetera. For hospital at home, the two main flavors are what you described as sort of physician house call program where doctors or advanced practice providers, licensed independent practitioners are the predominant sort of actor, if you will, provider type that's going to the home. They're obviously able to do a lot of different things. They're able to do advanced physical exams and perhaps place IVs and give medicines, perhaps do some of the things that, you know, even an RN might do in a hospital or an LPN might do in a hospital or a social worker might do in some cases because they're able to really understand a patient's social determinants of health in the home and put that together with advanced clinical assessment. That is not our model. At Medically Home, our model is, is to really dissect the actor from the activities where there are lots and lots of activities that need to be performed and occur in a home-based care setting, particularly for acute care. Mm. Look at it this way. Imagine yourself sort of sitting or standing in front of the door of a patient's room in a hospital. 
-hmm. you would see lots of people come through that door. You might see phlebotomists come through to draw blood. You might see RNs come through to do physical exams, draw blood, place Foley's, measure urine output, Mm -hmm. and advocate for the patient. You might see physical therapists come through that door, mobile imaging, pushing an x-ray machine, and then you'd see the doctor as well. And so our view is that you really need to replicate all of those services in a very multidisciplinary way Mm. in the home. We also take the view that in order to scale hospital at home, doctors should be providing remote telemedical virtual care. Mm. Because it would it would be not feasible to send a doctor to every patient right. at home. Like there's like not right. enough doctors to be able to do that. There's not. I mean, we have, we have physician, nursing, staffing shortages. Generally, we have staffing shortages of all types of healthcare professionals today. An example is paramedics as well yeah. and EMS professionals. And our view is that, especially in the setting of those shortages, we really need to match the appropriate activities to the appropriate level of licensure to perform that activity as part of a a holistic care plan in the home. Now that care plan should be devised by a doctor and a nurse and an advanced practice provider at times as it would be in the hospital. Hmm. However, that care plan should be executed by a whole multidisciplinary array of provider types that might include a nurse, an in-home infusion RN, for example, a wound care RN, an in-home physical therapist, an in-home advanced practice provider at times, but oftentimes an in-home community paramedic or phlebotomist or courier or mobile x-ray technician. So these are patients that as a hospitalist, you take care of patients who get admitted to a hospital. So it's a centralized form of care. But some Mm -hmm. of these patients that do get admitted, like they can actually not be admitted to the hospital, diverted and mm-hmm. get their, get the same level of care at home. Yeah. Again, there's two ways in which hospital at home is delivered today. And I want to really, you know, credit our, our innovators in the federal government at the CMS for this, because there was a lot of work done by many different leaders in the hospital at home space to create an acute hospital care at home waiver program during the COVID pandemic to allow for hospital at home to be scaled and to meet more patients in the home by offering the same level of acute care with the same level of reimbursement for Medicare fee-for-service and Medicaid fee-for-service patients in the home. So let me translate. So the government basically started paying for this. They did. Yeah. (laughs) Because before the government didn't pay for it. Why? Like, Why wouldn't the government pay for something that is more cost-effective that you're just (laughs) saying? Well, actually, let's talk about the outcomes to your point, uh, because I'm going to gently skirt the question about why the government would or would not pay for this for a moment, because I think the question is, why would anyone not want to support this? And and the anyone could include providers, patients, caregivers, payors, commercial payers, that is, government payers. Insurance companies. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. You know, I think that there's the view for hospital at home, and I agree with this view that this is one of the very rare win-win-win wins in healthcare, where it's very clearly a win for patients. That's the most important thing, and is a win for their caregivers. That's also a very, very important thing. I want to return to that in relation to design, by the way, because there's a very important discussion around patients and caregiver experience in this model. Yeah. But they win. And 
We have very good evidence to suggest that they win. There's developing evidence to suggest that they win. They win from the perspective of clinical outcomes. And so for that reason, doctors win. We got into this to provide high impact care to our patients. And we're able to provide care that has a better safety profile, a better quality profile in the hospital at home than in the brick and mortar hospital. There is now more research on that fact than for any other service delivery innovation. I would submit, and this has been well put out there, I'm I'm citing others when I say this, but hospital at home is the most well-evidenced service delivery innovation ever. What? Yeah. So can you give us an example of a disease process that you get the same outcomes like versus being admitted to a fancy hospital like you being taken care of by you and your team of like dozens of people versus like, hey, we're going to instead treat you at home by, by different tools that we have. We'll talk about those tools later. Yeah. Well, and let me, let me say just to return to my earlier comment for one second. While it's so well evidenced, that doesn't mean that we should stop doing research and quality improvement in it. In fact, it's more important now than ever. So that was a quick aside. Now, let's take a patient with COPD Uh as an example. You've seen these patients. You see them all the time. They come into your emergency department. They're exacerbated. And their primary care doctor probably knew that they were becoming exacerbated, may have trialed some oral antibiotics and steroids as an outpatient. You know, the primary care doctor was incredibly busy, was over committed to patients that were coming into the office and wasn't able to address this patient's calls into the office from outside, couldn't schedule the patient for a two or three day, you know, urgent follow-up visit. And so patient continued to get worse despite appropriate therapy and goes into the emergency department. We've all seen this movie before for COPD and heart failure and asthma and acute exacerbations of chronic diseases. Sure, And that's where I step in. I'll put them on breathing treatments. Yeah put IV in them, give them steroids, right. admit them to an inpatient hospital floor to be taken right. care of someone like you. Yeah. And you know, for that patient, a hospitalist like me would admit them and probably wouldn't be concerned about diagnostic uncertainty. You know, We know that they're short of breath. We, it might be a combination of heart failure or COPD, but it's one or the other, and maybe something yep. else is going on that we need to rule out. But you know, we can confidently bring a patient home and treat them for the thing that we're going to otherwise treat them for in the hospital. We would bring that patient home the majority of the time out of directly out of the emergency department. What? Yeah. Like that's an option. I could go as, as the ER doc, I go like, I could admit you to the hospital or I could give you the same care and discharge you to home with the team (laughs) that's going to take care of you. That's right. And I think this is really important for emergency department doctors because I empathize with you. It must be difficult to have patients come into the hospital And, you know, historically you've had basically one decision to make as far as where the patient goes after your treatment, do they go home or do they go upstairs? Yeah. And obviously that's changed a lot over the last several years and decades. It may be, do they go home? Do they go to a skilled nursing facility? Do they go upstairs? Do they go to another hospital? But what about this other option of, yes, they need to go be hospitalized, but they can do that in their home. Wow. That's an option that's on the table now for the first time. I personally don't have that option at my hospital. I would love that option because some patients like don't want to get admitted to the hospital. Okay. So there's two types of patients that I see, two, two categories. You know, One, the patient who wants to get admitted because they think that they're going to get 
better care, better outcomes because they're in the fancy state of our billing. But now the patients are like, I don't want to do it. Like I hate hospitals and I want to be at home because that's the most comfortable place. I can't sleep when I get admitted to the hospital. Yeah. So let's address those two yeah. subtypes of, of patients. I also want to include the caregiver in those subtypes because for the patient first, there are many patients who need to come to hospitals and be hospitalized for continuous monitoring and continuous infusions and positive pressure ventilation. And the things that we do in step-down units and ICUs, we are currently not providing that level of care in hospital at home today. Yeah. And then there are many patients who get hospitalized and we are hospitalizing them because we're going to give Q12 hour, Q8 hour, Q6 hour medications. And that's every 12, eight or six hours. Or we're going to give every day or every four hours labs. Those types of patients can be brought home wow. for the services. Now, from the perspective of safety as well, I think there's, there's a perception that by being in the hospital, you're very, very closely monitored, yeah. right? Yeah. There's people bother me all the time, right? Yeah, there's like true. dozens of people coming in, in my room and like yeah. all this activity going around. Right. right. And so that's true. And so what we need to do, our work in hospital at home is to replicate that experience through telepresence, through virtual care with the right virtual care technology. We can make it such that you are monitored either continuously or intermittently. And we are also able to put that monitoring together with humans, with virtual providers like virtual nurses and virtual doctors who are also monitoring you as part of their care plan. Mm. And so let me just describe the medically home model that I was referencing before, because our model is to have a virtual nurse and a virtual physician and what is predominantly a virtual advanced practice provider in what is sort of a telemedical command center and we call it a command center because of references to aerospace and engineering. And you can imagine a command center really operating a decentralized network outside of that command center. So there's centralization of the clinical brain, so to speak, the brain that is creating the care plan and the doctor, the nurse, the advanced practice provider, and others, of course, the pharmacists, the social workers, the case managers, those are all folks that are part of that centralized resource, even if they're not sitting in a physical location. Mm. That team then works with decentralized clinicians and non-clinical service providers who are executing their care plans in the home huh. and, and fulfilling goods and services to the home. And what we do at Medically Home is put those two things together. We help to manage that service provider network so that doctors and nurses and advanced practice providers at health systems predominantly can create care plans that get executed in the home mm. and can be confident that the quality and safety and experience and timeliness and, and all of the things that are important to high quality care that they're happening in that service provider network. How do you design that experience to be human centered in this mm -hmm. like semi-virtual environment? Cause mm -hmm. there's some things that I do where I see the patient before me at the bedside and you know, I'm pretty touchy feely with my patients. You know, I, I hold their hand a lot when I talk to them. I put my stethoscope yeah. on their chest to listen to their heart and breath sounds. I think that human touch, mm -hmm. like I think that's like a lot of what patients expect right. know, when they go see a doctor. So don't right. you lose that 
human to human interaction yeah. at a hospital home model? No, I think you do not you lose the human interaction. In fact, I would submit, Bond, that right now, as you and I look at each other on Zoom, that we're having a pretty deep connection on this podcast. Yeah. And we don't need to be sitting across from one another at the table that I'm sitting at right now in order to have that connection. In fact, when I'm practicing, I practice in a brick and mortar hospital for uh -huh. your listeners' awareness. When I practice in that model, I'm able to talk to my patients at the bedside. I'm actually able to have longer conversations with them virtually, having yeah. video visits or having telemedical communication with them. I also have to rely on their perspective. And this gets to your question. I have to rely on their perspective. I also am heavily reliant and dependent upon the perspectives of the multidisciplinary care team that is also evaluating them virtually or in the home. Mm. And so in that way, hospital at home is a real forcing function. When the clinician and clinicians in the command center are virtual, it's a forcing function for multidisciplinary care. The doctor and the nurse and the advanced practice provider must work together to understand their varied clinical virtual exams and assessments, not only of a patient's medical condition, but also of their social determinants of health, of yeah. their capacity to make decisions, of their caregiver burden, of their perceptions of the care model, all these things. And then we also have to work with the folks who go into the home to execute those care plans. We have to be very closely tethered to them, mm. but we have to start with the patient's perspective yeah. in all of this. And you asked about sort of, I think in healthcare, we talk about patient-centered decision-making yeah. and patient-centered medical homes. And you know the, the words patient-centered come up a lot. And I think that's great, but I actually really do love human-centered. I prefer it and I prefer because while this model puts the patient at the top of the pyramid and the patient is number one, there's also the caregiver in the home. Yeah, yeah. We admit the whole family when we admit a patient to hospital at home, mm -hmm. and we admit non-family caregivers to the model. We, in many ways, become a part of their family in a way that does not occur in the hospital because we are in their homes with them. Yeah. When we are in their place of authority and autonomy and they get to tell us what their home is like, but also what they do day over yeah. day, those are variables that are controlled for when we yeah. admit patients to a hospital room. I love that. I like human-centered better because patient-centered, you get this mental model of like being in a brick-and-mortar hospital as opposed to being at home and... And that patient experience often sucks. I've had family members, yeah. you know, when they get in the hospital, I'm like, they're at the bedside waiting all day long. Cause like, I don't want to miss the medical team rounding, you know, they're going to round, they come in for like five minutes and then they're gone for the rest of the day. I'm like, right. Oh, I don't want to miss that time right. when, when they're actually there. It, yeah. It's a terrible experience for a caregiver, especially mm -hmm. during COVID when so many of us could not even visit family members yeah. in, in the hospital. So how do you do things like listen to a patient's heart mm -hmm. or lung sound as a doctor, yeah. but not, not actually meeting the patient in real life? Yeah, no, that's such a wonderful question. I mean, first, just to you know, be very clear, the predominant form of delivering hospital at home today is by taking patients out of emergency departments and off of medical surgical floors to put them back into the home for 
their hospital at home length of stay, if you will. Mm. And I, I say that because it's important to recognize that in those models, there, there are doctors placing stethoscopes on patients and doing advanced physical assessment in person in order to make a diagnosis or to determine a level of acuity or determine whether or not the patient needs the hospital at all got it, got it. in the case of you in the emergency department. But then when the patient is in the hospital at home, in our model, I am tethered. I am tethered to another type of care provider in the home mm. who I work with, I have to collaborate with to do a physical exam. Mm. For example, I might depend upon a licensed independent practitioner, like an advanced practice provider, uh-huh. who I, I've asked to go into the home to perform a heart failure exam, look at a patient's jugular venous distension, uh-huh. you know, check on their pitting edema, weigh them, do a pulmonary exam. I may actually do the same thing with a very well-trained yeah. mobile integrated health community paramedic. And the well-trained piece is, of course, very important. We're taking home-based care providers and we may be upskilling them mm. to have them do advanced physical ex- assessments for various different clinical conditions. Yeah. The similar concept applies to an in-home registered nurse with whom I'm working. And like I said earlier, I think this makes me dependent upon the level of quality in that in-home service provider in a way that is not true all the time in the hospital. If I don't have confidence in a resident or nurse or an APP exam in the hospital, I may go do one myself, right? Mm. In this model, we need to make sure that we are upskilling our in-home service providers so that I as doctor feel comfortable being tethered to them. So let's put on your future predicting hat here in maybe like 10, 15, 20 years, like what percentage of patients do you see Mm -hmm. being treated at home versus in the hospital? Is that going to increase by like 5%, like 10%, 100%? Like, what do you think? Yeah, good question. I mean, so I won't give you only my perspective here. I think it's important to be slightly data and expert opinion driven. And, And so, you know, most of the expert opinion in this space to date and the data where it exists, which suggests that about 20 to 30% of current hospital volumes could be put into the home. Wow. A third. Yeah, a third. And, And look, I'll say openly that when I treat patients in the hospital, I go through my list of patients and I develop their care plans, but I also ask myself, what am I actually doing for this patient today? Yeah. And could I have done that thing for them in a home environment with a very high quality and high functioning provider network of services that is decentralized? Yeah. And a lot of the time, in fact, I would submit that, you know, sometimes 60 and 70% of the time, the answer is yes, on a medical surgical floor. Yeah. Right. And so 20 to 30%, that's of all comers. So that would include patients that go to the ICU and step down unit. We can't take those today. And I don't know whether in five or 10 years we'll be able to, I think we'll be pushing on the step down unit, but that number kind of rings true with me. Cause I think, you know, like 20 or 30% of patients I'd see in the emergency room that I'm admitting, I would feel comfortable. Like, like, I don't think they like need such a high level of care, but I don't think they could go home and just like be safe. And I would love that extra option. And and for those listening who don't work in hospitals, sometimes <laughs> it's a little bit of a battle to go yeah. like, 
hey, I think this patient needs to get admitted. And sometimes on the other end, it's like, well, can't that patient go home? I'm mm-hmm. like, well, maybe they might have a bad outcome. And so having this other option of like, hey, I could send this patient home and they're going to get cared for mm-hmm. is pretty remarkable. I, I yeah. think that's pretty revolutionary. It's a great option. I think, you know, to your earlier question too, we have some work to do in hospital at home in order to meet those numbers. Those are not the numbers we're meeting today. And we know that every practitioner in this model knows that we, our challenge right now is to scale this model. Yeah. Everyone wants to see this model scaled. And that's what we're hyper-focused on at the moment. That requires a lot of things. It requires a permanent regulatory and reimbursement framework for this model. It requires really clear standards and indicators against those standards for quality and safety in this model. It obviously requires a decentralized and distributed workforce that is highly capable of executing against those standards. Those are things that we are developing and constantly focused on. We'll get there. Are other countries doing it better than us in the US of this hospital at home model? Is this an international podcast, Bond? Yeah. Oh, it is good. Yeah, people from all over the world tune in. Well, then I'll say, I'll be politically correct then and say (laughs) that we collaborate a lot. In fact, earlier this year, our teams were at the World Hospital at Home Congress in Barcelona, Spain. And as an aside, we presented out on our quality framework for hospital at home. And it was very well received. We, We won an award for it. And, you know, that's the type of collaboration we we see in the in the world space there's a lot of leading systems that are not based in the US that are based in places like Spain mm. or the UK or France or Israel or Taiwan and Singapore and it's really important that we have in places they're, they're all beating like, us again no no i think well <laughs> you know i think I actually think back to, and I I should add to that list just for completeness, you know, Australia Uh, and Canada. And so there there are lots of them out there. I think that this is an international delivery model that was imported to the US. Other -hmm. countries have been doing this for a much longer time than we have in the US. Yeah. And they've been doing it very well. I would say that a lot of countries, however, are still working to scale their hospital at home programs. Got it. You know, for example, Australia, they were quoted recently at our World Hospital at Home Congress as saying that they treat probably between five to seven percent of hospitalizations nationally. Wow. Now, I would submit that that is a very clear version of scale. Five to seven percent of hospitalizations, that is a lot of hospitalizations in the home. That's a lot. Then there are countries who are pushing the fold in different ways by expanding high acuity care and, and blending it with lower acuity care to improve transitional care into the home. Yeah. And so we have a lot to learn from other countries in this yeah. space. What technologies are you getting most excited about that's going to help scale hospital at home? You know, there's like yeah, AI, chat GPT, drones, all this stuff. Like yeah. what what do you see as some like groundbreaking technology that's going to help help you all to scale? Yeah, well, well, first, you know, you might you might think there, there's not as much discussion of drones in hospital at home today as you might think, um, though that's been discussed. It's not something that is of primary focus. I am really glad you asked the question in the way that you asked it. You know, what are the technologies that will help hospital at home scale? Because technology will help hospital at home scale. Technology is not going to drive scale in hospital at home. I think that's a really important distinction that's oftentimes confused generally, but also in our space. I think to your question, we could certainly benefit 
from higher fidelity clinical monitoring technology. Mm. A lot of remote patient monitoring, in my view, is, is commoditized at this point, mm. but we do need different types of technologies in the hospital at home. For example, we need high fidelity remote monitoring that a patient can wear for seven to 10 to 30 days that is easy for a patient to put on the body that is very clean user experience, but also very clearly and consistently transmits data because this patient is acutely ill. They're not a post-acute remote patient monitoring patient. A lot of the technologies that have been developed for remote monitoring were not developed for acutely ill patients. And so we're moving up the acuity spectrum yeah. right now. What do you mean by like telemetry recording like, yeah. and like yeah. respiratory rate and pulse oximetry, all, all yeah. that stuff? Yeah, there's wonderful technology that exists for single lead telemetry in hospital at home. There are technologies for seven lead telemetry we're obviously able to do 12 lead ECGs intermittently in hospital at home. I would say that no one that I know of is, is bringing home the 12 lead telemetry box with all of the leads going off the patient's body because we'd like to reduce wires in hospital at home as much as yeah. we possibly can. That's one example. You mentioned respiratory rate, and there's some really interesting vital signs monitoring that's not necessarily heart rate or rhythm monitoring happening in hospital at home that might include respiratory rates and SpO2 intermittent or continuous, but also things like falls detection mm. and mobility. Patients are more mobile in hospital at home. They're yeah. getting out of their beds. They're moving around. That's a good thing. Yeah. And so, you know, really detecting that, but understanding when that's safe and not is important. You also mentioned artificial intelligence. This is early days for that in hospital at home, but we're developing more and more data. And there are certainly platforms that are really innovating in this space. I think where we've put our focus at Medically Home is actually on the enablement and management of that very complicated network of decentralized service providers. This is an area that undoubtedly needs technology enablement to scale because it's so different from what we do in the hospital today, yeah. where we may use an electronic health record to drive order to fulfillment in a centralized supply chain in a building. But when you imagine 18 different categories of clinical and non-clinical goods and services mm. with multiple levels of redundancy in those 18 different categories that's driving around to different patients' homes in a 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 mile radius outside of a hospital in both urban, metro adjacent, rural, and truly rural areas that problem becomes very, very complicated from a logistics and supply yeah. chain management perspective. And so that that's what our technology focuses on at Medically Home. There's other ways in which technology, I think, can really support the model that are a little less, less software and hardware dependent. I think we need just really good patient communication technology yeah. in hospital at home. From a human-centered design perspective, we need great ways for our patients to consistently give us feedback on how we can improve. Yeah on our care while we're caring for them. I could talk to you all day about this, Greg, but you're busy. I got to let you go here. <laughs> My final question, if a listener were to come visit you, Greg, where would you take them out to eat? I love where I'm sitting right now. It's a rainy day in Boston, but what I would probably do is drive them to the Boston Logan International Airport and fly them down to Philadelphia <laughs> to have dinner with you, Bon. Probably a park because that's where that's where my wife first met my parents in Rittenhouse Square. Yeah, and and I always enjoy a good a good meal from a Steven Star or Jose Garza's restaurant. So I'd yeah. come down to you. 
we could we could eat on one of those sidewalk tables and and hey, people man. watch yeah Lo- that sounds good it. to me love it <laughs> well thanks greg for coming on the show so good to connect with you again Amen. Oh, such a pleasure, Bon, and it's been an honor. I look forward to decentralizing care with all your listeners in the future. Let's do it. It's always so good to have friends on the show. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Greg. You can follow him on LinkedIn. Design Lab is produced by Rob Lavisi, editing by Fernando Carrios. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.